This is a Federal News Network podcast. When the White House added up the results from the latest Federal Employee Pulse survey, the General Services Administration saw some positive feedback from its crew. GSA Deputy Administrator Katie Kale tells Federal News Network's Drew Friedman she's particularly satisfied with the sheer number of responses that GSA got. She first comments on why it's important to have a series of surveys. Because we were able to do three of them, thus far at least, we were able to see if people's perspectives were shifting, were they remaining the same. And one of the things that I was very proud to see is that the number of GSAers who took the surveys was high for all three of the of the pulse surveys. And that engagement, wanting to provide that feedback, regardless of what, what we may have seen, was something that I was very excited about. And we did have some pretty good scores, but irrespective of the score, it showed us that we'd still have a lot to learn. So we still have a lot to do as we're navigating this new work environment. So even though we we may have done well on scores, I really want to stress up front that, that there is a lot of work still ahead. Let's dive a little bit deeper on what some of that work would look like. You know, for example, GSA scored 4.6 out of five, with five being the highest. When asked if agency leaders are clearly communicating return to office timelines, that's a very good score, but where is there still room for improvement with things like reentry plans or the hybrid workplace? Absolutely. So, you know, I think, you know, even looking back well past two years ago, GSA had some advantages because we were already leaning into telework before the pandemic. We had laptops and hoteling stations, and, and many of our teams were already uh, either teleworking or remote. So we were able to, to flip the switch pretty easily once uh, March 2020 hit. That said, it was, it was still a huge challenge. And one of the things that we focused on that you mentioned here is, is communication and making sure that our communication is transparent as well. We learned that early on, uh, especially in my tenure here, that we needed to be able to over-communicate in, at times and be frank in telling employees that that things might change. And I think that that mindset really paid off in terms of building trust as we went through the worst of the pandemic and as we um, were starting to approach the reentry. And that that leaning into transparency, even when we don't know the answers or had to give big caveats, was really important. And And with the survey results, what we were seeing is that that trust had been built and it was important that we could be candid with the GSA employees as we were trying to do the right thing. Obviously, the, the group that deserves the, the most credit is our employees themselves as they were able to show resilience and keep delivering on our mission, especially our wonderful facility managers who needed to be in the federal buildings and keep them up and running and, and keep them safe during this time. So we really need to give the the employees some credit. Diving in a little bit more, you know, when we're thinking about communications, everything that we did was based in safety first. And everything else was anchored around that, whether it was in um, our email communications or our town hall and, and everything else in between. And we wanted to make sure that it wasn't just the employees 
that we were thinking about. It's the employees and their families and, you know, really making sure that they know that that our primary value is their is their health and well-being, because if they don't if they don't feel safe and secure in that way, then they're not going to be able to deliver for the American people. It's just as simple as that. And we also had to remind ourselves often that not everybody has experienced the last two years the same way. And they were coming back into this really in, in different places. So, you know, when we were communicating, really thinking through, are we speaking for the people who are excited to return to a facility as well as those who are not? How can we be really crystal clear using plain language about a new policy or or exceptions to a policy? And then really also, how are we talking to the employees as individuals, as, as humans, right? They're, they're parents and caregivers, or they, they've been home by them, or they've been home by themselves for two years. And so like, how are we really communicating with them at that level? And, it, you know, it's, it's a struggle balancing all of that, but we have our mantra, uh, and we've, we've said this in our town halls and in our emails to, to employees, is to give each other space and grace as we're going through this. And I think that that hopefully that's something that not only translates from this scenario, but in the way that we work with each other moving forward as well. And I wanted to go back to something you said. You mentioned that some of the communications you've had to be candid with your employees. Can you give me an example of, you know, what are some of the communications that you've had to just deliver honestly? And how how do you communicate those? How often are you communicating and also, has your approach to reentry communications changed over time, changed over the last year? One example of, of a time that we had to be honest and, and very transparent, we had set a return to facilities date. And right around the time that, that we were getting ready to come back into the, the offices, uh, Omicron started to, to tick up. And so we had to be able to tell our employees that we were, we were pushing back the date, but we didn't know the right time to push the, the date to. So we said it was going to be a date TBD, but we promised that we would provide ample time between the time that we set the date and the date. And so employees had, employees got that. They understood. They felt good that from the feedback I received that we were not just picking an arbitrary date. And we were really waiting, listening to the science, figuring out the best time to do it. And then once we had a date, we gave everyone, depending on when they came back in, a 30 to 45 day notice before they needed to come in. Because it was a big change and people needed to be able to, to make plans. You know, when I talk about parents and caregivers, you know, what, what that meant was that they were able to figure out what their, their plans were going to be a month or a month and a half out. And we wanted to make sure that we were taking care of our employees in that way. In terms of how we have changed our communication, I think that it's important to, to remind ourselves that empathy and transparency are important keys to communication. Um, and that's true for any organization, whether you're, you're public, private, or, or otherwise. And so what we really did was just up the frequency of, of all of our employee engagement. 
we held town halls, which were mostly focused on the decisions that we were making and giving employees the opportunity to ask questions. We had our agency leaders drop by our departmental all hands meetings virtually, of course. But we also did outreach to key employee groups, such as our special emphasis programs and affinity groups, which tend to be a little bit more informal. We're able to take questions. And if we're taking questions in settings like that, we're able to build up the trust. And, you know, honestly, sometimes when you don't know the answer to something, it's a little bit uncomfortable. But the benefit of being able to do that and, and having that conversation really does outweigh the potential discomfort. And one of my favorite things that we've been doing, uh, both the administrator and I um, have been doing regular uh, virtual coffee chats with a cross section of our of our employees of our organization. And these are small groups of employees and they you know get an opportunity to meet each other meet with the administrator or myself. I get to ask questions. They get to ask me questions. And they also just point out things that are are potential emerging issues, either concerns or opportunities. And a lot of really interesting things have come out of those conversations, including how we're ensuring accessibility and also equity in a more, in this new hybrid way of working. Because the way that we've worked over the last two years and the way that we worked before that didn't always work for everyone. So having these smaller conversations, kind of doing some idea building is a great way to build trust, but also figure out even new and better ways to fulfill our mission. Tying back to Mm -hmm. the poll surveys, this is something that's relatively new. We saw just the third round of results come out. You know, the idea is that they're a snapshot. They give you feedback a little bit more quickly than some other types of surveys like the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey from OPM. How does that timeline make a difference and how can you implement or change things based on the results of the Pulse surveys? We value feedback in all ways, shapes, and sizes. What's great about the Pulse checks, they are coming out, they came out every couple of months. And so you could see if the decisions that you were making were shifting the perspective and the engagement of the um, agency employees in any way, shape or form. And so for us, you know, the data that we've collected helped us understand if our policies and our communication were actually on the right track. And it gave us some, you know, as we looked at the results, it gave us that some level of comfort that we were navigating things in the right way. We did see a lot of feedback, I believe, between the second, I think it was the second and the third, and this was before we had made the decision that we had to, we had to push back our reentry date that folks were getting nervous because o- omicron was starting to was starting to rise and we saw that and we were able to adjust as as we needed to it's really valuable to have data sooner rather than later and to be able to use that data to evaluate decisions that are being made at that time as opposed to looking back and seeing, oh, you know, this is how we did over the past year. FEVs are great, and we we want to make sure that we're keeping that as well. But we were able to see with these pulse checks that internal unsatisfaction scores were staying high during the pandemic, and engagement was was steady, and that was really important to us. 
Speaking of Febs as well, you guys did did quite well in that one as well. And I think one question that particularly caught my attention was the it was the actually the lowest scoring question for the entire Febs, which is I believe the survey will be used to make my agency a better place to work. And government wide, it was about forty uh, percent of respondents agreeing that the agency was going to use that survey to improve things. But for GSA, that was at 65%. So how are you specifically using feedback to inform changes? Are there And are there ways that you're showing your employees that you are using the feedback? We are committed to maintaining a feedback loop because we, we ask our employees and our customers a lot of questions whether it be FEVs or pulse surveys or our internal satisfaction surveys um, or the surveys that we ask of our customers, um, it really is important to then get back and provide the results that we can and say, hey, look, this is what, you know, um, and we did this with our, with the pulse surveys. Here are the results. We want you to check them out. These are the things that we were excited about and we found interesting. And hopefully then they see the results or the, the decisions that are coming out of the, the feedback that we're receiving. And we want to make sure that we're always highlighting that as well. So we use these, you know, quick surveys to be able to give us actionable information, which tells us where we may need to put additional leadership attention where we may need to shift our finances, where we may need to do a deeper dive. And it, we've, we've done these on numerous occasions, just being able to support the, the ongoing work that we have. GSA Deputy Administrator Katie Kale speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all, but I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old and uh, I remember I really wanted to play little league baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. 
And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, 
I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is. I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Ask anyone with a DWI if it was worth it. They'll tell you it's no holiday. Impaired driving kills the holiday spirit. Drive sober. Drive smart. Extra enforcement now on Minnesota roads. A message from the Minnesota Department of Public Safety.